There isn't anything I wouldn't do that I haven't asked somebody else to do. And the only reason I'm in charge or a manager is just because I feel like at my core, I can do everything no matter how small a job it is. And, and I, I'm not above any of it. And that, to me, that's grit. Hi, I'm Juven, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out, it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach, and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now, on to this episode. Thanks a bunch, Bob, for joining me. Welcome to Go to Market Grit. Really, really excited to have you. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. So let me make sure I have your background straight and fill in the blanks because I think it's relatively eclectic and it's a pretty awesome place to start and considering where you are now, somewhat incredible. So started your career as a commercial fisherman in Alaska. Nailed it. Yeah. Then went to Oracle, got your kind of sales EDU from there. Mm -hmm. Did BD at a company called Website Pros for a couple of years, then went to F5 to be a sales rep for a few years. Then really got into your first management gig at Bluecoat, which is now Symantec, but at the time was just Bluecoat, started out as a rep, then went to run inside sales, then ultimately left there running field sales across Western US. Then FireEye to be the VP of West and LATAM, yeah. which IPO'd about three, three and a half years into what looked like the four and a half year stint for you there. Yeah. Then VP of sales for a security company called DTEC Systems. Then you went to Optiv, which is the largest security reseller, I guess, in the world, became the VP of partner solutions there, did that for about a year, which then I imagine quickly transitioned into Demisto catching your eye at Optiv. So you went to run sales for a company called Demisto, VP of sales there, which was then acquired by Palo Alto Networks, what, two years into your run there? Yeah, about two and a half years, I guess. Yeah. Two and a half years, a paltry $560 million acquisition. And you spent uh, about a year at Palo Alto. I'm sure you really enjoyed and loved everything about big companies. And then now you are the CRO for a security startup called Obsidian. Dude, is that it? Is that all you've done? No, no, no. Actually, you, you, left, you left out some interesting ones, right? But I mean, admittedly, they're not on my LinkedIn necessarily. So I went to Gonzaga University and I, I knew I needed to get a sales job coming out of school. And at that time, I was managing a mountain bike shop doing retail. And I was managing people, which was technically my first management job. So my first real job out of college was selling carpet. I sold flooring supplies and um, it was on full commission. And I just filled a van full of like carpet supplies and collected all these business cards. And anyway, I sold to architects and everything. I did that for a while. Then I moved down to San Francisco in 98, I think. And I actually started off working for Robertson Stevens as a, in investment banking. 
And I had my Series 6, 7, 63, and uh, I was selling mutual funds. And then I went to a sales trading desk at uh, an investment bank called Volpe Brown Whalen that's no longer around. And uh, we kept taking these tech companies public. And I just remember sitting there one day going, you know, I have an inner geek. You know, when I was younger, my, my mother put me into an Apple IIe. I was dating myself. I, I knew how to program Apple IIe's back in the day. And then that gene popped itself back up when I was sitting there on the investment bank desk and I decided to resign and go work for Oracle. So that's where the Oracle started right after a brief stint in investment banking. And I realized that my dreams of becoming Gordon Gecko were dashed. <laughs> now I wanted to be Larry Ellison. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. Let's dive into it. The two topics that I want to talk to you about are culture. So culture of a sales team, culture of a company and the channel. Two things that I know near and dear to your heart, things that you do particularly well. So starting with culture, maybe high level, what does culture mean to you professionally? First off, it's like you have to have a couple of key principles. And people that have worked with me will probably throw a stapler at me if they heard me say this because I repeat it. But, you know, you don't win or lose alone. And that's a statement for the entire company. And everybody's in sales. And that's a statement for the entire company. And I just like aggressively collaborative cultures, aggressively transparent. And I think that builds a lot of trust. And again, obviously transparency, but it builds a lot of trust. And B, the thing is, is that I never want to build like this us versus them mentality between sales and marketing or sales versus engineering. I want to make sure that everybody knows what everybody's doing and everybody's rowing in the same direction. And so that first off, those are the key principles. And then, you know, that's, as a company wide. And so I say that from a company standpoint, not just sales. But with sales, I definitely want to build kind of the esprit de corps, you know, the, uh, you know, it's us against the world kind of thing, circle the wagons kind of thing. I want everybody to know that I trust them implicitly. And these are the kind of people I hire as well. You're trusted implicitly. And my trust, the collective trust is yours to lose. So cherish it and hold on to it and don't ever break it. And so essentially, that's where things come like, treat this money as your own. Treat this company as if it were your own. What would you do if you ran this company? That sort of thing. So I definitely want a lot of sincerity and integrity. And when our sales team knows that you trust them implicitly and you empower them, and they're the people that you hire don't want to lose that trust, they'll run through a brick wall for you. They'll do whatever it takes. Those are the kind of people I like to work with. I like to hire those are the kind of people I like to work for. And so, you know, I'm loyal and transparent to a fault. And I think that's a far lesser evil than the alternative. Unpacking a couple of the things you just said. Sure. Don't want to win or lose alone. So this is something that I think about all the time. Sure. I think there's a tendency for sales reps to want to bring Medusa's head to the table and show it <laughs> off a little bit. And especially at early stage companies, selling's a team sport. There's no way around it. I yeah. mean, I used to have my CEOs come with me to close a 15K deal because it just meant that much to us at that point. Absolutely. So, hey, maybe just unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the CEO example is a great idea. I pride myself on, say, when I was at Fire, I reached into the engineering team and, and kind of understand their hopes and dreams. And lo and behold, I find a couple future sales engineers in there. I expose them to sales and the sales process, and I have them sit in on calls. So I feel like being inclusive and bringing people that you would normally not think would be in the sales process to bring that in. 
you know, and provide updates to the company or provide updates to your CEO, whether they ask for it or not. Just last week, proactively created a company-wide go-to-market review because I never wanted anybody in engineering, if they're working on an integration with, say, Zoom, I don't want them ever to not understand why we were doing it. I want them to understand the business reasons and the motivation behind it and know that it's just not somebody dreamed up randomly. So it kind of comes back to that transparency and collaborative thing and that, you know, I like taking people out of non-traditional sales roles and bringing them into the process and empowering them to do so and making them feel like they can help. The company I'm at now, our head of recruiting, started sending me leads from people that he placed at other firms that might buy our product. Stuff like that. If you trust people and you ask them to get creative and think for themselves, wonderful things will happen. And that's what I found. The other thing that you mentioned is implicit trust. Couldn't agree more with it. Yeah. How do you have implicit trust with someone that you may not have worked with before? And what I mean by that is like, are you only hiring people that you have a trust and cadence with? Or do you feel like no matter what, I have an hour interview with someone, I think they're the right person. I put them on the team and immediately they've earned that implicit trust. Yeah, no, certainly that's a great question. And obviously there's a bit of risk. You know, I have a lot of Bobisms and stuff like that, but uh, it's really easy to hire people. It's really hard to fire them, you know, and you don't want to ever do that. We can go into that later, but, but essentially, you know, obviously hiring's key. So you have to be without question, 100% confident in the person you're hiring, you know, and listen to your gut, listen to your intuition. And you can kind of go into the tactics of hiring somebody, but, you know, as you know, I've been in this business for a while, so it's pretty easy for me to back channel anybody. And it's typically a red flag for me. If I can't find anybody to back channel somebody, then it's typically a red flag. They're out of scope somehow. But, you know, Mm -hmm. so I would say, first off, it sounds really pedantic, but you got to hire right. (laughs) And it's always nice having internal referrals and back channeling somebody. And because then all of a sudden there's more at stake you know, the employee or you're the friend or the confidant that recommended them, there's a bit of risk there, not only in the person you asked, but also in the person you hired, because then you let them know that like, hey, we both know Steve. I don't know if you knew that, but Steve recommended you for this job. So you probably, you know, implicitly you don't want to let Steve down in addition to me or this company. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of guilt involved there. I guess that's my Catholic background, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely you want to let them know. And I, I found that Again, if they're the right person, and, I, and this is covered in the interview and in recruiting process, is that if they're the right person that doesn't want to let you down and can provide you with specific examples of following through on something, even if it's not necessarily a cybersecurity sale, it's you know delivering food to the needy or working at a soup kitchen or completing a project that might not have anything, again, to do with the actual job or cybersecurity, you can kind of get a pretty good idea of who they are as a person do they have integrity? Will they follow through on their word? And, and, you know, ultimately you try to understand some of the things that you can't learn on the job, which is again, honesty and integrity and work ethic. And I want to go back to easy to hire, hard to fire, and then the back channeling yeah. as well. Cause I think those are both really important points. Uh, critical. Before I do, do you think having a strong culture, especially on your sales team is a, is a competitive advantage? 100%. No question. Like in my last company, we were in competitive situations and it sounds really primordial or I don't know what the right word is, but necessarily like we would literally sit there and talk about our competitors. We would be asked about our competition. You always sell with integrity, right? You never talk down and say that that's a horrible product or they're horrible people or they're just Mm -hmm. whatever, they're doing something wrong. 
But what I would do is I would highlight our strengths. And one of our strengths was the fact that I knew that my company and my team was just cooler and easier to work with. And how do you compete against that, right? You can say I have more ports or I have more bits and bytes and I've got more whatever, you know, you can get into tactical stuff or, you know, we'll beat you on price, whatever. That stuff's pretty interesting, but it really does. It's not emotional. It doesn't make it personal. So when you make it personal, it counts. And prospects, the people you're selling to, you know, they don't have a quota necessarily like a salesperson. But they're making business decisions based on solving a business problem. And there's a bit of political internal risk, especially now in this era, on that person. So you need to understand what makes them look like a hero. And what makes them feel like they can be a hero with you is confidence. And again, you know, there's a bit of an inherent advantage just kind of having been around a while. But, you know, I literally would sit in front of prospects, CISO, CEO, whatever board, and say, literally, the reason why you should go with us is because, I mean, I would literally say we're cooler and there's no way you compete with that. There's a lot of swagger involved there. And if you say it with a smile, they know you're not completely arrogant, but you're confident. There's a, there's a fine line there, right? And yep. um, if they know you're taking it personally, then you'll personally make sure that they're successful. And even after I left that last company, I got calls from some of my old customers that were having you know, a problem with their product and they, they didn't know or they didn't care that I had already left. They just knew that I would take care of it. And you know, there's a story once where you know, I was selling appliances back in the prehistoric era and an appliance failed on December 23rd in downtown San Francisco. You know, I'm the sales leader and I'd hand delivered it to, to that end user in downtown San Francisco on the 23rd in the afternoon. That's what I'm talking about. That's awesome. And you don't have to answer this. So if it's personal, but there is a story that you told me over beers a long time ago about a health scare that you had at Demisto. Oh, yeah. And there was a really special moment where the culture kind of embraced you and the team rallied behind you. Would you be okay sharing that? Yeah, not, not at all. I'll share as much detail as possible. And that's you know, part of the transparency thing. But yeah, I had a brain hemorrhage uh, suddenly in November 2017. And I had just started running and ramping up sales at Demisto there. And long story short, I was in Stanford for about 18 days, ICU and all that good stuff. And then another month or two to recover after that. And, you know, it was really cool to see the company. Of course, you know, my first concern, which looking back was really dumb, was, you know, well, what about my job? I don't want anybody to know. I don't want to lose my job. And you know, I'm so excited about this. And I literally, I literally set an appointment with, with Adobe CISO from the hospital bed for my founders to go out and meet. And they had, the nurses had to take the phone away from me. It was it's just stupid. I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. But... The company was amazing. We had engineering in Tel Aviv, Israel, and the entire team got together in one room and recorded a group kind of get well session. You know, they won't let you send flowers in the hospital because somebody might be allergic to them or something like that. But it was just an outpouring of support. And, you know, the company stepped up. One of the co-founders covered for me. I got multiple well wishes, electronic recordings and videos of people wishing me well. And it was just an amazing outpouring of support. In, in an industry and in an economy and in a world where there's all sorts of bad news going on, if I had any doubt in humanity, it just blew that away with that and I'll be forever fortunate. And that made me really feel like we were part of a family and family came first. And um, this company, you know, you spend more time with people you work with sometimes in your own family. So 
definitely made me, you know, I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now, but it definitely, uh, those, those are all friends for life. And to me, that really spoke to the culture we had built and uh, the kind of people we had hired. And I do think it's such an amazing acknowledgement to using culture as a competitive advantage. Forget, you know, obviously just being there to support you and your health yeah. is, is first and foremost, but I know they, they basically told you take as much time as you need. You're our sales leader when you come back. And that's, I think, really empowering for you, of course, but also just a good nod for your team, knowing that this is a culture that starts and, and ends from the top down. Oh, yeah, definitely telegraphs the message, right? And, you know, again, without naming names or going into details, after that, there was a couple more health scares with employees that either worked for me or with me. And, you know, the company, we repeated the same thing, you know, just do what you need, take care of yourself. And, you know, this will be here when you come back. It's a great story. One of the other things that you reminded me of as we're talking is culture is set from the top down. Yeah. And one of the things that I've always admired about you and the way that you lead, even hearing your story about like, hey, we're just cooler, is there's a genuine authenticity. And it's something that I admittedly on this podcast that I try to be myself as much as possible. It's pretty darn hard to do it, surprisingly. It's something that I really admire in people being genuine and authentic. Do you agree that that authenticity that hopefully you can have allows people on the team to just be themselves? And hopefully that makes them the best version of themselves, whether they're selling, teammate, whatever that might be. I agree 100%. I have some thoughts on why it's difficult, but uh, yeah, I agree 100%. So, you know, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to look like a fool and um, potentially overshare. So it, it takes a kind of a healthy combination of confidence, self-awareness, and you know, that sort of thing. But also you need to deprecate yourself sometimes as well, because it, it allows you to be approachable and it allows you to be strategic deprecation. I, I, I've called it before, right? <laughs> you know, it allows yourself to be vulnerable and genuine. Yep. And as long as it comes from a good place, and behind all that, you know, you know your boundaries and you know you're confident, then you know, it's going to be fine. But I think people really appreciate it when you show the real human side. I've worked, and I'm sure you have too. You've worked for some very old school kind of manager types that um, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. And that's a very traditional command and control style, which I think can work. But in my case, in my my experience, you know, I found that the opposite is quite true. So you said some thoughts on why it's difficult. Maybe from my perspective, and this is a good lead-in into the next question that I was going to ask you, you get a bunch of sales reps, gals and guys who are hyper-competitive and usually pretty full of themselves in the sense that like, they're extremely confident and that's what makes them great. They're yep. usually relatively selfish. And I talk about this kind of consistent thread of salespeople and it's absolutely what makes them great. A lot of the time, that fear of being vulnerable is almost everything they're not, right? I mean, they portray such a bravado. Maybe you just touch on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, performance comes with the cost sometimes, right? So there's tons of management books, sales management books written about it in terms of like, you're going to deal with a certain amount of maintenance for high performance. You know, you never want to get in your situation where you have a high maintenance and low performance. I mean, that's that's a kind of a misalignment, right? But you have to definitely accept a bit of what is my motivation? You know, I need a bowl full of green M&Ms every Tuesday or something like that, right? You know, there's definitely a cost in performance. And I've definitely had my fair share of reps like that. So you have to kind of understand that. And then 
to gain their trust, even with the ones that are the most bravado, it's like, so I found that, you know, I've sold before. I've been an individual contributor almost as long as I've been a manager. And I like to co-sell along with my team. So no matter how hard they are, no matter how good they are, no matter how tough they are, I like proving to them that there, and this is another key Bobism for me, is that I, there isn't anything that I would ask anybody to do I haven't or wouldn't do myself. And so I like proving to my sales reps that I can sell and I can generate my own opportunities. And to me, that's essential because, you know, I'd go nuts if I didn't do that and do my own cold calls and appointments and all that stuff. But and that's another Bobism is everybody can be replaced. Right. And so it's like even me, I never have that opinion where I'm in a ivory tower. And so I like to show that to my reps, too, that you always have to work hard, never take anything for granted. And complacency is death. And I consider that for me as well at my level. And so I like to co-sell along with that, get them to trust me, get them to understand that I can do what they do or I've done what they've done. And then those walls kind of break down a little bit with those reps. You know, I let them thump their chest and take credit when possible, but it's always good to kind of remind them a little bit. And, you know, I don't want to say knock them down a couple notches, but maybe a little and just kind of go, listen, you're truly amazing. And we're so fortunate to have you. However, <laughs> you know, you got to keep it real. Touching on culture for a couple more points that I wanted to explore with you. Are there formal events that create or reinforce culture? And I think that the reason I ask that is right now your team is all remote because of COVID, but even independent of that, you're managing a fully remote field team. You have guys or gals in Philadelphia and Austin and Southern California. So are there formal events that create or reinforce that culture? And is that how you might be able to manage a remote team and continue to remind people of the culture that you're trying to build? Well, I definitely think, you know, and a lot of these things are flying around today in terms of like sending people care packages or all having a glass of wine or a drink, you know, together on a Partridge family kind of Zoom thing. You know, I think that's pretty, pretty given. But it's always nice, like for my birthday this year, the company I'm at sent me just little things, right? Just sent me a gift. And I, I didn't expect it. And that was cool. Just symbolic things like that, that we care, we know you're there, that kind of stuff, you know? So no matter how small something in the mail is really meaningful. You know, we all get so many emails a day. It's like something physical and tangible that shows up on your front porch is pretty cool. Do you think things like the traditional sales culture reinforcement events that I think about, sales kickoffs, club trips, QBRs, do you think those are a waste of time, good use of time? I know you've had some pretty legendary sales kickoffs. <laughs> you know, are those opportunities at first, I think admittedly, you know, when I was first learning how to be a manager, I kind of phoned in the QBRs because I just wanted to go back to me and the team selling. Like I wanted us to get back to driving the number. Yeah. And I realized pretty quickly, like, this is a great opportunity to reinforce the culture that we have. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because I have, as you've mentioned, enjoyed my sales kickoff and QBRs. It's rare, obviously, especially in this day and age, to get everybody in one place. So there's a couple of schools of thought there. You, you definitely want to have separate tracks for people who need to learn technical stuff like sales engineers and separate tracks for sales people. And you know, typically the best thing that they can pull out of that is competitive intel and product roadmap. But again, if you've hired right, you probably don't need to tell them how to sell or how to whiteboard necessarily. I mean, I can't hurt, but it's very rare that you get your team together and you get to see each other and put faces to names. So if you do have that opportunity, I'm a big fan of levity and making something fun. So anyway, just the short answer is yes. 
The longer answer is, is that if you're able to get people together, definitely balance it with some fun. Because, you know, and you've heard this before too, Jude, but it's like, they're not going to like necessarily walk away with very tactical information or technical information. I mean, with the exception of engineers, but they're going to remember how it felt. And so I remember one year I did, you know what orienteering is? No. Well, so what I did is you team people up and I had a professional orienteer. And so what they, they give you a map and they give you a compass and then you put people together as teams and you have to go out and find these waypoints. And everybody has their own specific mark. And when you find a waypoint, you put your mark in it. You have to find all of them in consecutive order. And then then the first person wins. And you're just running through the bushes and stuff like that. And I paired people together that wouldn't normally make sense to be paired together. And it was hilarious. You know, some introvert with an extrovert. And, That's awesome. And to top it off, it was in this park near Palo Alto. And it was just it was just covered in rattlesnakes for whatever reason. So we're jumping over rattlesnakes and people are getting ticks and... But anyway, we all did it. Nobody got hurt or injured or Lyme disease, but it was dubbed the most dangerous QBR ever. <laughs> and to this day, and that was in 2010, 2011, to this day, people still talk about it. And obviously we did great work at FireEye, but they don't talk about how much they exceeded quota or what deal they closed, but where the smiles and the culture and the, the connectivity to each other comes from are those, are those memories. Absolutely. I remember... When I moved to Chicago to build our team yeah. across the Midwest, I had just hired about eight or nine folks across the Midwest, right? So typically more conservative. Everybody on the team was twice my age, been selling for as long as yeah. I've been alive in some cases. And we had all day meetings, all day QBRs. This was the first time everyone got to meet each other. It was our first QBR. Yeah. And I didn't tell them what the team event was. And I just said, hey, pack some athletic gear. And, <laughs> and I get there in the morning and I tell everyone we're going to be doing soul cycle. And, <laughs> and so, and so the whole day, honestly, I should have said something at the end or at the beginning before that, because everyone was looking up top 10 things not to do at soul cycle, you know, <laughs> texting their daughters, their daughters are like, Oh dad, you're going to screw this one up. And <laughs> people said they weren't going to do it. And, and ultimately everyone did it. And it was such a blast. It put people out of their comfort zone. And I think it's something that that's always stuck with me. No, that's key. You hit on it. Exactly. You gotta, you gotta get people out of their comfort zone, do something they normally wouldn't do or talk about something they normally wouldn't talk about. I want to talk about channel because it's something that I know you've done a lot of, and I think people and myself could, could learn from. How do you feel like the channel, and maybe if you want to talk about for those that are listening that might not know what the channel is, how do you feel like the channel has changed in, in the SaaS world? And, and maybe if you could just describe the channel a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, the channel at a intellectual level is a force multiplier. None of us are ever going to work for a company that can hire enough people to be everywhere at any one given time, nationally, or globally. So you need the channel to extend your force. So that's your force multiplier. Essentially, what the channel is, is a layer of business in between you and the end user, sometimes two layers. And when you empower them and you educate them and you reinforce what they're doing, then they can be your extended sales team. And that's leverage. And that's something that every business needs, whether you're private or public. But you know, you said the term earlier, and it's a team sport. So the channel is a team sport. You know, whether it be from the comp plan to the messaging internally to who's got a seat at the table for executive meetings, the channel needs to be present because that's how the company is going to grow and extend. And when you do it right, they're, they're part of the family. They want you to win. 
And when you understand how they're paid, and that's very critical for every single facet of our business is to understand how people are paid because better for not, that's how they're motivated. And so when you understand how the channel's paid and what motivates them, I mean, I've had products that didn't yield the channel a lot of margin, but it opened new doors. It was a wedge in the door. And so that was the most valuable thing to them, not necessarily the margin. Yep. Makes sense. Do you feel like it's, and I absolutely want to touch on the compensation piece because I think it's a big part of activating the channel. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's changed in the SaaS world? And I'll qualify the question. Like back in the day, the channel may have delivered a box, right? And that appliance may have been plugged into someone's data center. They're literally using their hands to do that. They're making sure the network is functioning and firing on all cylinders. I've actually racked those things. (laughs) <laughs> that's changed. Yeah, yeah. And the buying, look at that, there's a wrench, there's a wrench on screen. The buying process, I think more importantly has changed where customers are doing their diligence well in advance of reaching out to a channel partner. You know, people, there's statistics thrown out that 80% of, of a buyer's mind has already been made up before they've ever talked to a sales rep, let alone a channel partner. And so when we get into more of a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, direct SaaS world, where I think the gap starts to lessen between the end consumer and the vendor. How does the channel work there? Is it equally as important? And what are your thoughts of the channel in a SaaS world? I think it's equally as important, but in a different way. You know, when you hearken back to the days of appliances and spare parts and operations and, you know, and I've set up those channels and um, a lot of those require the value-added distributor and that sort of thing. I think it's important to first start before you dive into the tactics is to understand that the channel also provides financial firewall and a risk firewall for the vendor as well. Because one of the big things today, whether you're SaaS or an appliance or whatever, having to navigate procurement, international currency, and just risk, the channel can mitigate that. And so there's three things in, from my view, that a channel can provide. And if they can provide two or more of those, then it's a beautiful thing. They can provide you with leads They can provide you with running the proof of concept, which a lot of our products need to be tested before they buy, or they can do fulfillment. Problem is today is we have a lot of partners that do only fulfillment and don't add a lot of the value. So you need leads, services, and then closure. And so ideally you find a partner with all three of those. But in the SaaS world, they're still equally relevant for the reasons I already stated in terms of risk and finances, fiduciary stuff. But it's also because your product is not standalone, most likely. It's going to integrate with other products. And not only is it going to integrate with other products, there's going to be a process. And there's going to be people on the other side involved in that. And so that's where it's different now, because the channel is kind of moving more towards a strategic services mode, where when I was in automation, it wasn't just that they needed to buy Demisto to do automation. They needed to buy a Demisto and integrate it with all these other products they wanted to automate. And that required the channel. And that required, you know, a high degree of strategic services and integration. So I would say, in short, the channel's evolving to less fulfillment. You need to provide more strategic services in order to survive as a channel partner today. And I saw that firsthand at Optiv, and they're going down that path as are others. So, yep. Does that make sense? It does. It makes total sense. And I guess for you, you've been doing channels, sales, sales leadership for a really long time. So you have a call it core set of channel partners, just like you might have a core set of customers that you could introduce people to. What if you don't? If you're a rep starting in a new territory, if you're a leader starting at a new startup, how do you prioritize 
where to start with the channel. And I'll be like really specific. There's small local channel partners. There's born in the cloud channel partners. You know, in our world, there's cloud, you know, AWS and, and Microsoft are, could be channel partners. There's the optives of the world. There's master agencies like Bridgepoints and Avant. There's the Deloitte's of the world. So where do you start? You know, I think it really starts with your product. And for me, it's all about if you're a company, 50 people, you know, series A, series B, you need to create draft, which, and, and I'll explain what that means. Essentially, it starts with your product. Again, coming back to the fact that an end user is not just going to use your product and your product alone. They're going to want to integrate it with something else. Or they're going to want to make another product they already own or they're looking to buy better. So what that speaks to is a technical alliance and an integration. So if you start with a meaningful integration, so like, again, if I can use names, at Demisto, we created a meaningful integration with Falcon Host, which is CrowdStrike's EDR product. So what we did is, I, so I call it a narrative. So based on the technical integration that actually adds value and means something to the end user, you can then go out there, you can go to market and use CrowdStrike as a channel. And what that means is that once you have that meaningful integration with CrowdStrike, you can go to CrowdStrike's existing channel partners. And once you educate and empower them with that same story, then they understand that they can go to all their existing CrowdStrike customers and sell your product to those. And then they can create the services and generate revenue from the services to integrate the two. So that's a narrative. It's a really basic example mm. of a narrative that starts with a meaningful technical integration mm. and creating that technical integration partner into a channel. And then you can, like I said, go to the VARs, you can go to their field, you can even go to their field reps. And if the story is, is that it makes the product easier to use and therefore it makes it easier to sell, you're winning. And that's how you find your channel partners is based on that meaningful technical integration. And if I'm getting too much into the in and out secret sauce, just tell me. <laughs> you uh, empowering and training It's always them. easier said than done. No, absolutely. It's uh, 100% of it's just actually doing it. Empowering and training them. Like specifically, how do you do that? What are like tactical things that you do to actually train them? Because sometimes that can be a really large lift. And sometimes that lift might fall onto sales engineers if you're a scrappy startup that doesn't have a massive channel team. How do you do that training at scale? The first thing you need to do before you get into the how is you need to make big bets, right? And uh, because as a small company, you have a finite amount of time, resources, money, people, et cetera. So you can't boil the ocean. You can't do every EDR vendor. You can't you know, integrate with everybody. You have to pick your horses, right? So let's say it's CrowdStrike again. So you, know, you can't go, well, let's do the same thing with Endgame and Carbon Black and Sentinel-1. Even though you might want to, and maybe you should, You've got to make a bet because you have limited and finite resources and you have to be very mindful of that. So if it ticks all the right boxes, then you got to make a bet and you got to be open to fail and you got to be open to adjusting, but you got to make a bet. And so first off, back to your heavy lift, right? So if you have finite resources, then you've, you've got to be careful in which horse you choose. And so let's say you've chosen your horse. And yeah, you know, quite honestly, as a startup, People that are there should know they're going to be wearing a lot of different hats. They're not at a startup if they're not, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, you do things like for the field rep, you create battle cards, but you do understand that it starts with the pre-sales solution architecture. Those are the thought leaders. Taking nothing away from you and I, Jude, but we're ultimately more replaceable than a sales engineer, right? So, no doubt. So the mind share with the solution architect and sales engineer is kind of where it starts. So you need to kind of build that 
that mindshare and that grassroots kind of understanding of what the integration provides with the sales engineers. Because if it truly makes the products easier to sell and easier to use, the sales engineers are going to care about it. So typically you want to start there and then you create a battle card for the sales team. You know, a one pager, easy to understand. You know, I love my mom. She's highly intelligent. She's a speech pathologist. But if she can understand what I'm selling, she can understand what the integration means, then we're golden. And I, yep. use, I use her all the time as my test case. And Bob, for a lot of folks that might be listening, they're not in security. Yeah. Right. Do you think the same principles apply in most industries? Do you think you can gain the same leverage? I do. I absolutely do. I think that it all comes down to people. And, you know, I think strategically there might be some tweaks, but ultimately it's about hearts and minds and making it personal. If you don't make it personal, you're not going to win. If you don't make it personal, you're not going to build a good culture. But it's, it's not as that easy. I mean, we could be the happiest people in the world and have just the worst product in the universe. We'll have better odds, but it'll still be a pretty bad product. So you need to make sure everything kind of fits, but your odds are better if it's about people, no matter what product it is. I've been at companies where we have awesome products and horrible people, and it turns out it's a horrible company. <laughs> yep. yep, makes sense. And double-clicking a little bit, when do you think is the right time to start building the channel? A lot of the time, people ask, Jubin, when's the right time to hire my first rep? And my answer is, you as the CEO or the founder should close the first five or 10 deals. And the reason is because you're going to have empathy and understand the sales process. You're going to understand how freaking hard it is. And you're going to be able to get a better sales rep once they've seen the yellow brick road be paved. Do you think it's the same for the channel? Is it five customers when you want to start approaching a conversation by around building a channel? Is it having 10 customers? Is it start from ground zero? Well, for all those channel partners out there, I know, I know I'm not going to say anything you don't already know, but I mean, it's specifically for Silicon Valley, you know, and for Kleiner, et cetera. It's like they don't necessarily want to outsource your future to the channel from the get-go. And typically, if you're going to talk about different tiers of channel partners, the boutique channels are probably going to be more useful for you because they have, they have number one, the relationships. They might not be able to deliver on a POV or do fulfillment, but they can bring you into the account. But you need to start messaging and create a channel program from the inception of the company just to telegraph to the outside world that you understand what a force multiplier means and that you value the channel. Channel partners will never tell you this, but they'll understand that at the inception of the company, some deals are going to go direct, but you know it's only because you can build a reference and go find out, find more uh, end users and help the channel win. Uh, it'll help you feed the channel because what the currency, the currency for the channel is leads and referenceable customers. And so you need to do that as, as much as you can, no matter what, with or without the channel. But then once you have that, the channel will actually start paying more attention. There's so much noise out there that you actually have to show them that, hey, we're going to close deals with or without you. We'd rather do it with you. And yep. here's evidence of what we've done without you. Do you want to do this together? So it's kind of a carrot and stick thing a little bit. But it also proves to them that, you know, this is a marketable product and it's going to close. But the thing is, is that once you go in, you know, you need a deal registration and stuff like that. Once you protect, once you go in with a channel program, you can't burn the channel because no matter how big or small the deal is, they'll never forget it when you burn them and take it direct. Yep. You got to be Absolutely. transparent and brutally honest with them. If you're going to take a deal direct, then you got to tell them. I want to go back to how they're paid. 
like I think activating the channel, a key component of that is, is understanding how they're paid. I have seen everything from 10% to 50% portion of the deal going to the channel. And maybe we don't have to get into the nuances of how much, but I would love to hear more about your thoughts on how do you activate the channel around understanding really how they're paid and how do you, how do you slot and insert yourself into that? Yeah, well, first off, whether you know how they're paid or not, if this is a new channel partner or a new channel partner rep, ask them how they're paid. Again, you may already know, but the fact that you're asking indicates to them that you care. You need to understand how they're paid, what they're focused on, and that is coming back to the hearts and minds. So you have to win the hearts and minds of your channel partners too. And if you don't do that, they're not going to be fighting for you when you're not in the room or not in the building. Because that's ultimately what you want. You want them talking about you and selling at you when you're nowhere around. But if you ask them how they're paid, then they're going to go, all right, this person cares, understands what motivates me and wants me to win. So that's the first step. The second thing to understand is that quite often a services dollar is worth more than a product dollar. And I'll tell you why. So at a channel partner, you know, you can say 10% or 15% on product. The reality is, is that a services dollar is worth more because it's stickier. So Domisto, Critical Star could resell Domisto and get 15, 18 points on a you know, $100,000 PO, whatever. That's their margin. They're paid on gross margin. That's how, why you need to ask them. But the services they provide, where they knit together that product with the CrowdStrike, that dollar is worth a lot more because once they do the services thing, then they understand more about the end user and it's a lot harder for the end user to let them go. And so all of a sudden they're doing staff augmentations, they're maintaining it, they're actually providing the processes. And so the services dollar always leads to more money for the, for the partner. And you see a lot of comp plans and partners generating more services dollars. And that, you know, that can also be, you see a lot of these partners, you know, managed security service provider business as well, because that's recurring revenue. It's a difference between knives and razor blades. The knife Sell the knife, and that's the appliance, yep. or that's the, that's the software. The razor blade is the services and the maintenance and the operation and the optimization of the product, and that's the services. I agree completely. I think that's really prudent. For those that are thinking about, hey, I've picked my horses. These are the top three channel partners. What are a few really practical things they could do? And some of the things that I think of, hey, just throw a couple deals that would have otherwise booked direct, just book those through the channel. And what does that do? All of a sudden that gets the rest of their peers really excited. You know, show them and in invite them to a sales or a customer call. See how excited their customers get. Anything else that you think of that are really low hanging fruit? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's first off to kind of like segment the channel partners you want. I mentioned the one, two, three, it's like, give me a lead, run the proof of concept, fulfill the deal. The middle one's the hardest, right? You typically, it's harder to technically enable a channel partner unless you're doing a lot of large business like a Palo Alto. So generally what you're looking for is you need, to, you need to look in the mirror and talk to yourselves and your partners about like what do you expect out of them. And quite honestly, for me at this stage at a 50-person company, I want to work with boutique partners that can bring me new accounts and I'll handle the rest. If they bring me new account, I'll protect them. They'll get as much margin as any other partner, but their highest and best use is bringing me into accounts. And I don't want to like yell at them for not running the proof of concept or anything like that. I'm just really at a mercenary stage understanding what they can provide for me. Now, you could even run into the situation where they can't even fulfill it. So you pay them for bringing you in, but you pay another partner to fulfill it, you know, in terms of like 
Critical Start initiates the deal, but Opta fulfills it. I'll pay them both. Because ultimately, you got to realize as a company, as a strategy, getting that logo in is the most important thing in the world. Getting that referenceable customer that will actually talk to the outside world is gold. You have to really look within and understand what defines success with the channel. And to think that the channel partner is going to be able to run a proof of concept and add a bunch of technical value right out of the gate is inaccurate. So it's not realistic, even though we all want it. What I want is I want more butts and seats and more at bats. Practical advice from Bob Cruz. <laughs> Dude, this was great. I could literally keep going for hours. <laughs> I will, uh, I'll wrap up for your sake with a uh, couple things. One, the show is called Go to Market Grit. What does the word grit mean to you? And how do you or, or your teams apply it? Yeah. So to me, the word grit means, again, coming back to one of my key dictums is, is like never, never ask anybody to do anything you wouldn't do yourself, no matter how dirty or small or menial or tactical it is. And uh, I hold myself to that standard daily, you know, and never outsourcing any particular part of the job to anybody else. Never assume somebody's going to do it for you. Never not understand any particular part of the sales process or the work that needs to be done. And I guess that kind of comes back to the commercial fishing thing. It's like, there isn't anything I wouldn't do that I haven't asked somebody else to do. And the only reason I'm in charge or a manager is just because I feel like at my core, I can do everything no matter how small a job it is. And, and I, I'm not above any of it. And that, to me, that's grit. And that's like comes with kind of a boot collar background and a little bit of humility and self-deprecating kind of sense of humor. To me, that's grit and just never, obviously never giving up, which is a given. But to me, that's it. It's just being able to do anything, whatever it takes to get the deal done and to make the team, the company and the customer, most importantly, successful. That's awesome. If someone wants to get a hold of you, how should they do it? Are you hiring? If someone wants to come work for you after listening to this, they love, they love Bob's culturisms. How do you get a hold of Bob and anything you want to say? Well, I mean, we're, we're in a standstill right now, but it, it doesn't mean we're not going to hire. We're what I consider kind of coiling up right now. We're still very busy because we're fortunate to be in the SaaS space and releasing some stuff on Zoom here shortly. But so, yeah, definitely get a hold of me. Uh, I'm just Bob at ObsidianSecurity.com is always a great way. You can find me on LinkedIn, Bob Cruz, K-R-U-S-C, and my contact information is there as well. So hopefully that works for you. Bob. Thank you so, so much. I love the conversation. Thanks, man. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.